Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. As a prisoner in the Lord, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Live with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in the one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in us all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of the gift from Christ. This is the word of our Lord. In our Old Testament lesson for this Sunday, in Exodus chapter 24, a really amazing thing happens. God had announced the basics of the, what we call the Sinaitic Covenant, and that was a two-sided covenant. You, the nation of Israel, follow these rules, and if you do it, I will protect you and prosper you and keep you as a sovereign nation. And they said, it's a deal. And then we've got to remember, God is holy. And God is, th- is 1,300 years away from taking on human flesh. Moses, Aaron and his sons, and the elders of Israel come up and they eat a meal in the presence of the Lord. God literally eats with them. Now his holiness should destroy them because they're unholy. And yet it doesn't. Later, the people will worship the golden calf and that fellowship they had with God will be destroyed. God will establish for them a bunch of sacrifices that they will make. And and one of those sacrifices actually isn't for sin. It's called the fellowship offering. And it was done out of thanks to the Lord where you would give a portion of your animal to the Lord uh, that the Lord had designated. But then you had a feast with your friends and, and the priest got a portion of that. And that fellowship meal was a reminder of the peace and the fellowship that we have with God. Now, that fellowship is an amazing thing, because as I've said, God's holiness should destroy our unholiness. Yet he has chosen to wash us clean of our sin, which is why we have fellowship with God. In our gospel lesson for this Sunday, Jesus feeds the 5000 men. Now, they they count the men. So if every man was married and had one child, that would be 15000 people. He had been teaching them, and then he was concerned that they did not have the nourishment to make it out of the desert back to civilization, so he does that miracle. They should have rejoiced in the fellowship they have with God, but instead they chose to do something else. The next day they would follow him across the lake and they would try to force him to be king because they wanted God on their terms. They wanted him to be a bread king who would make miracle bread for them every day so that they didn't have to work uh, work for it. They would destroy their fellowship by changing what the Messiah was, which is changing the word of God. And so in our lesson today through the Apostle Paul, we are encouraged in that unity. We have a vertical unity with God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, if you will, and a horizontal unity with the bride of Christ, our brothers and sisters who form the invisible church of all believers. So let's launch into our text as we as we see that we make every effort to keep uh, your unity. The Apostle Paul says, 
Therefore, I myself, the prisoner, only in the Lord. Now, I am encouraging you. I want to stop here. You often hear me say we've got to pay attention to the prepositions used in the Greek language. And the preposition here is like when you have a backyard that's fenced in. Everything outside of that fence is none of your business. Everything inside is your property. Paul is a prisoner only in the Lord. And he's encouraging the people only in the Lord. He's not giving them a guilt trip. Look at me. I'm a prisoner. It's the least you could do for me. What he's saying is the minute he denies the Lord, he stops being a prisoner to Rome. But because of the Lord's love, Paul is encouraging them, pointing out the sacrifices that this calls. He's actually in Rome so that his brothers and sisters in Christ can prayerfully be considered a legal religion and not harassed by the Roman government. So he says, therefore, I myself, the prisoner only in the Lord, am encouraging to walk, and we'd add here, in your life, in a manner proper to the calling which you were called. Walking about in the calling to which you were called. What is the calling to which you were called? That's the good news of salvation in Christ. The calling that God has become a man and did all the work for your salvation. He was sorry enough for your sins. He was holy enough. And then he went to the cross to remove your and my sins. And so Paul here says that the good news of salvation in Christ, it called you and the Holy Spirit used that to enter your heart to actually create the new person that is united to Christ and is united with his body, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, when Luther discovered the gospel, the good news of salvation, that Christ did all the work, it's free, not that you have to be sorry enough and then God will forgive you. You have to do enough good works or buy it. The other people of the so-called church accused him. They said, you've made salvation cheap. You've made it free. People will run out and embrace sin. And this is one of the many verses that addresses their concern. When the good news of salvation in Christ has called you and given you that new man that's connected to Christ and connected to his body, his bride, the church, you do not keep the law in order to be saved. Rather, you've been credited with it. You have been saved. And out of thanks and praise, that new man that's connected to Christ, through whom Christ does good works, he's going to walk about, literally the Greek word is walk about, conduct the rest of your life then, wanting to bring that glory, worthy of the good news that you have already been saved. The rest of today's text is just telling us how we walk about doing that. And so again, therefore I myself, the prisoner only in the Lord, am encouraging you to walk in your life in a manner proper to the calling with which you were called with all humbleness and attitude. The Greek word used here is completely opposite of an arrogant self-promotion. Look at me. I'm such a good Christian. You guys need to follow me. I am awesome. Jesus didn't come and take on human flesh to blow his own whistle, did he? In fact, he hid his godhood so that he can save us. One of the ways that we destroy our vertical relationship is in a self-promotion. When we start focusing more on ourselves, and it definitely destroys our, our, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when we're putting ourselves above them, it would be like if your spleen or your heart or your liver and your body were to decide, I'm the most important part and the rest of you need to kowtow to my needs. Then every part of the body quits working the way it's supposed to. So he says, with all humbleness and gentleness. Now the gentleness that's here is the opposite of a self-serving harshness. 
The clear self-serving harshness is, these are my needs and I'm in control, now bow to them. Look at how unbelievers have done that throughout history. As we say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When people get in control, they say, now I need to stay in control. And they have an iron grip oppressing others. But as Jesus says to us, we are not to be like the Gentiles who lord it over those who are underneath them. Christ, who is true God, did not serve himself when he took on human flesh. He hid his godhood so that he could be so that he could die for our sins and live perfectly for us. He used his powers of his godhood to save you instead of using it to bow us in, into submission to him. And so we want to be careful that we don't fall into that uh, self-serving, uh, arrogant self-promotion and that self-serving harshness. Now, I'm the one in control. And that's a reminder, even in local congregations, there are times they might even have the right idea where a member can get so focused on what they think is even proper and needed for the church that proverbially they don't even realize it, but they don't realize this isn't a hill worth dying on in the battle. And they'll even blow themselves up on the hill, destroying the hill itself. Oftentimes we see that with people who become very popular. They, they teach the word of God at the expense of the word of God, giving itching ears what they want to hear. And when people say, uh, you are teaching something that's contrary to the word of God, they say, look at the numbers I have. Look at how many people are flocking to me. How dare you challenge me? After Jesus fed the 5,000 the next day, he will, many people will not like what he's teaching and they will leave until we get to the point that when he's crucified, everybody's abandoned him. So self-promotion and stuff, it doesn't, it, that's not serving in God's word. And he continues with patience. You and I are sinners. God is very, very patient with us, daily lifting us up and removing our sins. And oftentimes when we get impatient with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we get tired of lifting them up and pouring the blood of Christ, when we start getting self-serving, then we stop having the patience that promotes the unity Christ has won for us. Finally, the Apostle Paul says, bearing with one another in love. To bear with one another is to take each other's burdens and put them on our back. To treat that brother or sister in Christ who is being a burden and to put them on your back and carry them, if you will. Now, when I, when I do marriage counseling, especially pre-marriage counseling, I tell couples, this, one of the secrets, this isn't the only one, to a good marriage is, if both of you go into the marriage saying, I am your servant, you'll have a good marriage. Arguments begin when one or both of them stop saying, I'm your servant, and start saying, now here's how I insist that you serve me. Well, it's the same way in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ who will turn around and say, but this is how I need you to bear me. They're not bearing, the, they're not bearing their brothers and sisters in Christ, are they? So we carry each other as a load, but when every one of us has the attitude of I'm your servant, this isn't a, a, a toilsome burden that's just going to grind us down to the ground. Now, once again, I say we have to pay attention to the Greek prepositions, and there the Apostle Paul says, in love. This isn't mankind's definition of love. This is God's definition of love, which is a self-sacrificing love, a love in spite of the fact that you and I are sinners. So we do all of those things in the love that God can only give to us. We can't produce it ourselves, 
by giving us that new person who loves the Lord and loves our neighbors, as is spelled out by the Ten Commandments. Verse 3 says, making every effort to keep the unity produced by the Spirit. That unity is only in the unifying bond, which is the peace. I'm going to get into that here more in a minute. But you and I, because of the forgiveness of sins, we're at peace with God. We forgive each other. We're at peace with each other. The Spirit produces that. And so we see we want to make every effort to keep your unity. It's a unity proper to your calling. That's the good news of salvation in Christ. And it produces it. So we want to be careful not to tamper with the word and change the teaching of God's word. Because we might think we're doing that so that we can have unity with somebody who believes something that's wrong about the word. But the minute we change that word to suit them, we've lost that vertical relationship and that'll destroy the horizontal relationship. This is a unity that you have. It's built into your new man. It's yours and mine to screw up, if you will. But it's also because of that Holy Spirit, ours to embrace, because it's already yours now. Continuing on, let's look at who produces that unity, because this isn't something that you and I have to climb Everest to produce. Verse 3 again says, making every effort to keep the unity produced by the Spirit. That unity is only in the unifying bond, which is the peace. The Holy Spirit produces this unity. He enters your heart and he creates, gives birth to the new person. And the peace here is the peace that's actually won by Christ. He won peace with you, with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by taking your unholiness and being holy in your place and removing your, the punishment for your unholiness on the cross and making you holy by sending his Holy Spirit, working through that calling, that good news that Christ is your Savior. And so the peace is truly made by, this, by Jesus and made yours by the Holy Spirit entering your heart through that message. This was all planned out by God the Father. So we're told in verse 4 that that unity is one body and one spiritual attitude, just as you were also called in one hope produced by your calling. There's only one body of Christ. So people say, why are there so many different denominations and divisions in Christianity? Now, sometimes it's just a matter of geography and culture. That's no big deal. But most of the time, it's because there's a group of people who insist on something that contradicts the word of God. And then we see visible churches that do not line up with the unity of the invisible church, which is, which is made by the word of God. Have you begun to recognize that God has given us his word and when the Holy Spirit gives us faith in that word, then we have the unity, it's already ours? And you'll notice we're told it's called in only in one hope produced by your calling. Now, I got to tell you, I really hope that I win the lottery someday. But I have to admit to you, I've never won a lottery ticket. So my hope, yeah, it's recognizing it's never going to happen. That's not what scripture means by hope. Scripture is not a matter of if, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of when. See, you already are saved. You are waiting for the glorified body. You're waiting for the removal of your sinful nature. You're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. You don't say if, you say when. You have been forgiven now. You are God's child now. So the hope is that one thing of the return of Christ when we get the new heavens and the new earth, it's a matter of when. We're just waiting for that to happen. That unifies us. When we change the purpose and the hope and everything, when we take our eyes off of Christ, we lose that unity. We're told one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Anytime we destroy the word of God, we're making a different faith. 
Now, remember, the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God. So if we change the word of God to suit what itching ears want to hear, then we're losing that one, Lord. We're tampering with that. If we make Jesus to be a bread king like they wanted to force him to be in our gospel lesson uh, for next week, then we're losing that one, Lord. And that one baptism, that is how you entered into the body of Christ. Baptism is your marriage ceremony to Christ, if you will. Paul doesn't mention the Lord's Supper, the other sacrament, because that's where he nourishes it. But in baptism, you enter the invisible church, the bride of Christ, and you become one. And it's always the same. I baptize you in name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he tells us we have one God and Father of all who's upon all and through all and in all. Not 50 different daddies that can compete with each other. One God who planned all this out, who made it all happen according to his divine planning. And he's over all. That means he's the ultimate authority. And you and I lose our unity with our, our vertical relationship with God when we start telling God how to be God and what kind of God we want. God knows all and he's the father over all, through all. God is working through you, but he even works through unbelievers for your good. And we're told in all, you are unified in that. So that you have this wonderful respect and awe for God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make every effort to keep your unity. It's a unity proper to your calling. God called you, and through that calling, you have that unity. And it's produced not by your and I efforts, but by the triune God. And it's already yours. Now, in verse 7, we're told one other thing. Now, to each one of you was given your own individual undeserved gift in line with Christ measuring out of each one's gift. Christ gives natural and spiritual gifts according to his grace. This is a mystery that's been hidden to you and I, but it's not showing favoritism. And in that grace, he gives us natural and spiritual gifts to serve. Now, I have two different kinds of people come to me and ask me about their gifts. The one is the person who... They are, are serving the Lord. And when they miss a Sunday, even the local congregation says, ouch, so-and-so is gone. Boy, did we miss all the things that they do. And I have those people come and say, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. They don't know because they're so busy serving and using them and they're not focused on themselves. And to them, to God be the glory. But the other kind, and this is who I deal with the most, is somebody who... They're not serving in the church. If they come to regularly, they're plopping down the pew. They're, they're nursing themselves, which is good, but they're not looking out for each other. I don't know what my gifts are. And in their case, it's actually, there's that, I'm focusing on me and I want to know, look at the great things that I can do. Paul had to deal with this with the Corinthians who were busy saying, uh, I talk in tongues and others don't, so I'm better than you. That's a self-promotion. That's missing the gifts that God has given God gives his gifts to serve his church. And sometimes there's a test that people can take to find out what their natural or spiritual gifts are. And it really frustrates me because that test really goes through and finds out what you like. Paul's a prisoner in the Lord. Do you think he's enjoying being in chains? Many times using our gifts means crosses. An example of just a natural gift. When we have a snowstorm and somebody's got to come up here and run the plow truck so the rest of us can get into worship. It's no fun getting stuck and having to dig it out. It's no fun donating that time, but I'm sure thankful for the person who gave that sacrifice. I'm not saying serving the Lord's always going to be full of misery, but Christ told his disciples if they're going to follow him, they're going to take up a cross. Sometimes the cross is just brothers and sisters in Christ who don't appreciate all the work we do or sit there and go, now give me more. But in the church, just as the body itself has different, 
different functions, the, the body parts. In the church, Christ gives many different gifts. And I, I think one of the greatest times I ever was aware of that was a church I belonged to as a layman where there was a man who was mentally handicapped. And we thought it was hard even to understand him. But he got to usher, and when you walked in that door, you felt love. That man seemed to fall all over himself that you would come through the door. And I could almost get angry, like, wow, boy, this guy really likes me. But then a total stranger would walk through the door, and he'd be the same way with them or somebody else that he knew. That was a spiritual gift to a man who didn't have a lot of, shall we say, natural gifts. I envy, in a good way, that brother's gifts and try to imitate that when people come in the door of our church because that benefited everybody. And you have gifts. When you're serving the bride, the body of Christ, those gifts are functioning to God's glory. And so it's served by an adversity, a diversity of gifts, sorry, a diversity of gifts, and he's given those to you, natural and spiritual as well. So we have a unity, a vertical reunity with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and a horizontal unity with his bride, which is you and I, the invisible church. It's yours already. Make every effort to keep that unity. It's a unity proper to your calling, the good news of salvation in Christ. It's produced and given to you by the one triune God, and it's served by the diversity of gifts that God has given to each of us. Amen. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.